Amen. I hope you have your Bibles with you and that you were either planning on or already have turned to Psalm 139. Psalm 139 can be found on page 521 if one of the Bibles in the backs of the chairs would serve you. And so you can find that passage on that page. And if that copy of the scriptures would be a service to you or someone you know, please do take it home uh, for yourself or give it to somebody else. Well, I hope you have been enjoying the uh, preaching ministry of several of the men in our church this summer, including my fellow elders. I've been greatly blessed to be able to sit under some preaching this summer as well as uh, be out of town for uh, a Sunday. And uh, I'm also looking forward to a couple of our deacons preaching soon. I believe it's in two weeks. Uh, Brandon Edmonds is going to preach to us, and a couple weeks after that, I think it is, our newest deacon, John Middlebrook, is going to preach as well. So, hope you've enjoyed hearing some, some other brothers and are looking forward to hearing from some others soon. Today, we look at a psalm that is beloved by many believers and, in fact, is often memorized. It's so beloved and so often memorized, or at least portions of it. Because in it we see a beautifully stated convergence between one of the most mind-boggling truths about the character and nature of God and our own reality. And it's this, that the God who knows everything knows me. You see in your copy of the scriptures perhaps a heading that indicates that it was written by David. It says at the very beginning, uh, before verse 1, to the choir master, a psalm of David. So it was written by David, and it was given to the choir master in order to lead the people of God in worship. And that's actually important for us to understand and to keep in mind. Because as you may have already noticed, both in the reading from Lisa a few minutes ago, and then in the song the children sang for us right afterwards, that this is a psalm that is rather individual in nature, more so, you might say, than corporate in nature. In fact, if you read all of Psalm 139 with a certain color pen and underline all the occurrences of I, me, or my, you will find 49 of them. I counted them myself. And I sought also to count the number of times the words us or we or our occur, and they don't. So this is an intimately personal and individual prayer written by David for you by the choir master in the worship of God by his people. Isn't that interesting? It is simultaneously, deeply individual and profoundly corporate. That may seem odd, but I think it's beautiful. Because isn't this what the people of God are supposed to do, what they're called to do, to get real with God, to be honest with themselves, and to remember the truths of God all alongside their fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord? And so it was normal for God's people to sing this psalm in their worship together, and it should be normal for us now. The reality is, however, that we live in a very 
individualistic and self-sufficient culture and society. And so it feels a bit uncomfortable for us to be transparent, honest, open about where we're really at with anybody and including our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Perhaps because we know that they too are just broken and stumbling sinners and they might judge us or they might think ill of us. But it's what God's people do. It's part of what's expected when the people of God gather for worship like we've done today. And so one of the things that we learn from Psalm 139 being both a corporate and individual and personal psalm is that the God who knows everything knows me and expects me to live out my life of worship to him alongside others who can help me to follow and trust and worship him. And so as beloved and bookmarked as Psalm 139 is, it actually packs quite the punch when you let it sink in. Let's take a closer look at this psalm in terms of its structure. We've got an introduction. We've got four stanzas. There's a chorus in there and a conclusion. If you're thinking in terms of song terminology, perhaps you could think of that conclusion as like the tag, the end of the song. This introduction includes a pronouncement that you understand me fully. Stanza one, your knowledge about me is infinite. Stanza two, your presence with me is inescapable. Stanza three, your creation of me was intricate. Then this chorus of praise that your thoughts are immeasurable for me. Then stanza four, your vindication is implored by me. And then the conclusion of prayer, that your examination is indispensable to me. So let's check it out. I suspect that we often read Psalm 139, verse 1, without the appropriate emphasis on the right syllable, so to speak. Look at verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. And I did it just then. I think the point of this first introduction is that you understand me fully. This one verse right at the very beginning in this introduction is the stated theme of the whole poem. It introduces Psalm 139 perfectly and it sums up its message. You have searched me and known me. And there's a lot going on here in this short sentence. Three things to note. First, it's the divine name of God that is addressed here. You can see that in your English translations where you've got all caps for the word Lord. It's intentionally chosen by David here to address God that way. He could have used another name for God. He does that sometimes, such as Adonai perhaps, but he doesn't here. He uses the divine name Yahweh, who is the thrice holy, sovereign, wise, loving God who covenanted with his people and called them into a relationship with him. And it's that aspect of God's nature, character, that David highlights by using the divine covenant name here. 
Secondly, it's the same God, that divine covenant, covenanting God, who has searched and known David. And along with him, every single individual person who's ever recited or sang Psalm 139. Now you see that word search there in verse 1. That is a Hebrew word that could also be translated examined. And I'm actually going to come back to that at the end. But for now, just stick a mental bookmark in that thought, if you will. Searched or examined. Third thing to note is that this is where the emphasis issue I brought up just a couple of minutes ago comes in. I suspect that when we read verse 1, we emphasize the words searched and known. That's fine. You have searched me and known me. But I wonder if it would be a good practice for us to read it and say it like, you have searched me. You have known me in a kind of wonder and amazement. I suppose that might make some of us uncomfortable because as uh, if you're a good Reformed theologian, we're trained, and I believe rightly, to not think too much of ourselves or read ourselves into passages that are primarily about God. I'm all on board with that, but we do have to also let this text speak for itself. And in this case, the text, the whole psalm, is calling for us to see that this amazing God, who is the focus of our worship, who is the fulfillment of our greatest desires, has an aspect of his focus on me. Remember that number of times I, me, or my is used? 47 times? The God who knows everything knows me. That's what this poem is all about. But as I said, there are stanzas to this poem, and those stanzas flesh out the main point and the message of this psalm. And so stanza one, even though it's number two in the outline, stanza one is says, your knowledge about me is infinite. That's what David wrote. That's what God's people sang. You know everything there is to know about me. You have searched and known me, in verse 1. And you could just stop there and be astonished. But David fleshes it out and explains it in poetic and picturesque terms what God understanding us fully looks like. Look at the artistic and illustrative language in verses 2 and 3. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. He says, when I'm sitting, when I'm getting up, when I'm going on the path, when I'm resting, in other words, every detail of our daily activities, both active in the rising and going and inactive in the sitting and lying down, he knows them. And of course, right in between those two phrases is this one. You discern my thoughts from afar. In other words, even from his position in the heavens, we might say, as ancient Jews would have regarded him, far above us in this realm of the divine, overseeing the realm of all that's been created, even from afar, he knows our very thoughts. He even knows 
The words that we're going to speak before they come out of our mouths, verse 4. And I think this is where we begin to grasp the fact that what Psalm 139 is communicating is for created human beings, both a great comfort and rather uncomfortable. Here's what I mean. The all-powerful, all-wise, all-knowing, ever-everywhere-present God having infinite knowledge, you could say total knowledge about me, is a comfort if I have a relationship with him and harrowing for those who don't. In fact, it's a bit harrowing even for those who do know him when those who do know him are acting or thinking or speaking in ways that don't reflect our identity as his children. You see what I'm getting at? He's a gracious God. He's patient. He's loving. He's gentle and kind and good and compassionate. But he is God. He's holy. He's wise. He's just. And so him having total knowledge about my every action, my every word, and even my every thought can begin to feel a bit scary. And I think it should. But notice also verse 5. You hem me in behind and before. In other words, in front of me and behind me. And lay your hand upon me. As uh, many of you know, just a couple of weeks ago, our family spent some time with family in Florida. And we spent multiple occasions having some fun in the Atlantic Ocean. It was refreshing. It was fun. It was uh, kind of interesting to get rained on in the ocean. I hadn't had that happen before, but it was a lot of fun. However, as much fun as we were having, there were a handful of instances where one of the children, whether our own boys or Kate's and my nephews and niece, needed some help or a little bit of assurance that they were okay in the crashing waves or the rising water. And you know what they would often ask for? Our hand. To lay our hand on them. To use our hand to take hold of them. There's one specific moment where there was some sort of issue with salt water and goggles not mixing very well and the child being totally fine but feeling completely disoriented and asking me, please put your hand on me so I see where you are or know where you are. That's something about, I think, what verse 5 is talking about. The comfort that comes from knowing that someone stronger than me and who loves me is there for me to help me. But isn't that also where some of the discomfort enters in? A hand being laid upon us by a stronger person and an authority in our lives can be a little bit uncomfortable. How many of you, whether currently as a child or the many decades ago that you were a child, were misbehaving and didn't know that your parent was in the room and suddenly a hand comes and rests upon your shoulder or your arm or your head, whatever it might be. That's not comfortable. That's a little scary. 
Because that authority is present and they're going to hold you accountable and what's coming might not feel very good. This is what the first stanza of Psalm 139 is about. God's infinite knowledge of me. Now I'm going to skip verse 6 for now. I have a reason for that. We'll get back to it in just a few minutes. The second stanza starts in verse 7 where we see that his presence with me is inescapable. That's, that's what it's saying. While it's true that he knows my thoughts from afar, from far away, high above us in the heavens as it were, the reality is that he's actually with me too. Look at verses 7 and following. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Here's this famous section of verses in Psalm 139 that describes that there is literally nowhere I can go where God cannot find me, or in some sense, is not with me. Verses 8 and 9 describe that in rather picturesque, poetic language. What it's saying is that whether in the realm eternal, ascending to heaven, or in Sheol, or as ancient Jews would have thought of it, the place of the dead, I cannot get away from you. Your presence spans from east to west. That's what he's saying when he's talking in verse 9 about taking the wings of the morning. And it includes the far western regions beyond the sea. The phrase the sea here to an ancient Jew was this vast unknown, this far away region into the Mediterranean. And to reference it was to refer to a great, dangerous, somewhat unexplored and unfathomably to them distant place. And David says, even there, I cannot escape the presence of the Lord. Even there, you are with me, guiding me, leading me. And here again is another example of something that is simultaneously uncomfortable and comforting. You remember Jonah, don't you? He experienced this, didn't he? He tried to run from God when God called him, put a calling on his life to go somewhere to serve him in a place that Jonah didn't want to go, and Jonah decided instead to go far away from where God called him to go, but he couldn't run away from God, and in fact, it was the very sea referenced in verse 9 of Psalm 139 that Jonah was a passenger in a boat on and into which he was thrown when God sent a storm on that sea in order to discipline and correct Jonah and graciously bring him to where he was called to go, heading east to Nineveh. And so for Jonah, God's inescapable presence was for some time a terrifying thing, not a comfort. When that storm was raging, when he was on the sea on his way to Tarshish, Jonah was not comfortable. And that storm was an indication of the presence of God with him, lovingly with him to correct him and to get him where he called Jonah to go. 
And you know, Jonah isn't the only of the minor prophets that speaks of this. In fact, in Amos's prophecy in chapter 9, he describes this vision of the Lord proclaiming his wrath and judgment on Israel. I have it on the screen for you, verses 1 through 3. This is the vision of Amos. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake, and shatter them on the heads of all the people, and those who are left of them I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. And now it starts to sound familiar. If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. If they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. Doesn't that last part remind you of Psalm 139? Only in Amos 9, it is not comforting. It's horrifying. The chosen people of God who have broken the covenant promised judgment. And so while the inescapable presence of God is certainly good news to those who have entered into a relationship with him through faith and repentance. The inescapable presence of God has some sobering implications too, both for those who do not know him and for those who are his, but who in some form or fashion are straying from him. It means, for example, that while you're sitting in a corner or lying on your bed where there's no one and nothing behind you, scrolling on your phone, looking at things that would horrify your friends or family members if they could see it, God is right there, fully aware of every precise detail of what you're looking at and what led you there. It means that those words you've chosen to use, that voice that you have raised, those violent actions stemming from sinful anger that you would never want your neighbors to know about, that you would never want anyone in the community to see, is fully known by God. Because we can't hide from Him. The third stanza gives us a more comforting and tender reminder, that of the fact that your creation of me was intricate. We love to quote these words in verses 13 and following to remind ourselves or to inform others of the fact that every single tiny baby fetus in the womb of a mother is a precious image bearer of God. From conception, every child is knit together by the master creator who knows every detail of every person's body and personality and intellectual capabilities. Let's read it again. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Look again at verse 15. It's more clear to us in verses 13 and 14, but it's saying it here too. You formed me. My frame was not 
hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. 13 and 14 says it a bit more clearly, but 15 says it too. It's what David means when he says he was intricately woven in the depths of the earth. He's talking in ancient Jewish language. This depths of the earth language in the Hebrew context is an artistic reference to being in the womb. But look at what verse 16 says too. It's saying that even before I was formed, he knew me. Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written, every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. I had a roommate my sophomore year of college who used to try to make us laugh by putting on this voice of kind of like an old cranky man and rant about random things just to make us laugh. And he would often use and incorporate this familiar phrase. He would say, such and such before you were a twinkle in your mother's eye. That's usually a phrase used by someone perhaps older than a young whippersnapper that they're lecturing who thinks that he or she knows what's best in order to communicate that they've been around since before they were born or even thought of. And that's a lot like what David is saying in the second part of verse 16. That phrase, when as yet there were none of them, or was none of them. In fact, that's actually a kind of notoriously difficult phrase to translate from Hebrew. And uh, our, our ESV, which is a wonderful translation, seeks to get as formal and literal and close to the original as possible. Look at two other versions. It might sound a little more natural to you. In the uh, CSB, it says, All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. NIV says it this way, All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. You're getting the picture, right? God created me. He created you. He knew me and you before we were conceived. And he wove us together, as it were, by his creating and sustaining power from the moment we were conceived. And of course, this has clear implications for the debate in our culture regarding abortion, doesn't it? What this passage says to the abortion debate is that every single one of the little dear ones in their mother's wombs are bearers of his image, people that he has created, and that is therefore inherently precious and dignified. That obviously doesn't change the fact that there are some horrific circumstances in which some women in our society, in our very community, are in and are victims. And we Christians must not only shout the sanctity of human life more loudly than those who want to shout their abortion, but we must also shout the dignity of those women because those are some of the very people that this psalm is talking about. And we must make every effort to provide needy, confused, terrified perhaps uninformed young women with the options that they need to be able to deliver their precious babies safely. That's why we seek to partner with the Christian organizations like Nightlight Adoption, of which Neil and Beth were a part years ago, and Hope First Family Resource Center, and why Holly and Brian have developed our off-the-wall adoption and foster care support group here at Redeemer. If you want more information about those organizations, you can 
uh, talk to me about that, or Holly, she's actually not here this week, but she'll be back soon, and if you have any questions about how you can get involved with that, we'll be happy to help. And so here is yet another fleshed out description of Psalm 139's main point, that the God who knows everything knows me. He created me. He knows me because he made me. And he knew me before I was ever conceived. You know, this also means that while you or I may at times feel some shame or discouragement about certain parts of our body, the one who created you isn't. Yes, of course, the curse of sin has brought brokenness into this world, and our bodies aren't perfect. Not a single one. Some of us have deformities, maladies of various kinds, physical characteristics that our society and culture looks down on, doesn't value and care for like they should, but God does. He knows your spinal condition. He knows your allergies. He knows your anxiety. He knows all the children that have been prematurely born. He knows all the aches and pains that come with age. He considers all of it in the way that he orchestrates our lives. Lovingly, graciously, wisely, and mightily. Now, between the third and final stanza lies two verses that act as a kind of chorus, and I think is actually also tied to verse 6. This chorus of praise states that your thoughts are immeasurable for me. Look at verses 17 and 18. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I could count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. If you flip back to verse 6, he ends this beginning section by saying, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. So whether you want to liken this to what some musicians might call a bridge in a song or a chorus or two different choruses or whatever, I think what you've got in this poem is this sort of connected refrain that, while not exactly repeated uh, perfectly in the psalm, is connected between verse 6 and verses 17 through 18, where it is essentially saying, I cannot fathom how awesome you are. Both of these sections, verses 17 and 18, as well as verse 6, are talking about vast amounts of otherwise unknowable stuff. Verse 6, saying, I can't wrap my mind around the infinitude of your knowledge of me. Verse 18, I can't even account for it. Look again at verse 18 at the very end, by the way. I awake and I am still with you, or you could say it another way, I awake and you are still there. That's another one of those instances where that's really bad news if you're on the run. If you're a fugitive and the law is pursuing you, you won't be able to sleep because they might be there when you wake up. But it's good news if you're under the care of a loving advocate and savior who's watching out for you. Kids, do you ever feel like your parents have eyes on the back of their head? I used to. It was uncanny and frustrating. 
It's simultaneously this amazing and frustrating thing for children, isn't it? When somehow your parents can tell what you're doing, and it's as if they have eyes on the back of their heads, and you're thinking, good grief, how could they tell? You also know what it's like, any of us, to feel like you can't keep something secret from that one person or handful of close friends in your lives. You say something like, they see right through me. I actually also think of one of my favorite movies. I believe uh, Paul, one of your other elders, one of his favorite movies as well, Muppet Treasure Island. You guys know this movie? It's a great movie, isn't it? Matthew's there with me, brave enough to raise his hand. You remember Jim Hawkins, this character out of Treasure Island, but inserted into a Muppet version of it, and his friends Rizzo and Gonzo work at a tavern, and the owner of that tavern, Mrs. Bloveridge, I think her name is, keeps inexplicably turning up at moments where they're commenting on things in secret and responds to what they're saying. And the punchline every time is, how does she do that? So it is on a much more reverent and holy scale with God. He is constantly aware of everything. And the kind of amazement and wonder that the singers of Psalm 139 express in verse 6 and in verses 17 through 18 is the kind of wonder and amazement that we should have when considering these things. It should lead us to worship. It should lead us to say such knowledge is too high for me. To say I can't account for these things. And that should lead us to trust. The final stanza of Psalm 139, however, is a far less comfortable one. Stanza 4. Your vindication is implored by me. This section is, I think, literally uncomfortable to read after coming off such lovely and loving language about God's intricate creation of all human beings. Look at what it says. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Psalm 139 also speaks, and God's people also sing, of their need for God's knowledge of them to lead to their vindication from him. Now, when David says in verse 21 that he hates those who hate the Lord, he is not speaking of the kind of hatred that the rest of Scripture explicitly condemns. We're not talking about personal vengeance or malicious animosity. It's not hatred towards someone in the sense that we might think of this picture of anger and malice and a desire for their harm or a desire for their death in a sort of personal way. Instead, in this context, David is talking about an intense and passionate opposition and displeasure toward those whose position vis-a-vis the Lord, his Lord, and his righteousness is also opposition. You see what I'm saying? He is against those who are against this awesome God. In other words, verse 21 is by no means 
a justification. God forbid that you would hear this for a Christian to go murder in cold blood someone who hates the Lord. That would be sin. Rather, what David is getting at in these verses is the fact that the people of God need him to act on their behalf. They need his knowledge of them to lead to his care for them. And in particular, when it comes to the people of God needing adversaries of the Lord and adversaries of his people. And so while the first three stanzas praise the Lord, after that chorus comes stanza four, which is a prayer. A prayer for vindication. A prayer for justice. A prayer for God's righteousness to prevail over the world's wickedness. A prayer of confidence that those who take the Lord's name in vain, those who are bloodthirsty and love violence, those who have malice in their hearts towards God and his people, those whose posture towards God and his people is one of animosity and hatred, stand no chance against the Lord's vengeance. And his people depend on it. They're sure of it. They hope in it. Friends, that means they don't stress about the evil around them. They're not grumpy and gloomy. They're not cynical and sarcastic. They're not always doom and gloom about all the bad that's going on. They're realistic about it, but they're also confident because they know that the God who knows everything and knows everything about them knows everything about everyone and will deal with everything justly in the end. Got one amen. That's good enough for me. Finally, we see this conclusion by prayer. Where the psalmist says, your examination is indispensable to me. I find it interesting that David concludes Psalm 139 with a prayer for something that he affirms in verse 1. Look at the end again in verse 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Almost verbatim what our kids sang a few minutes ago. But look at verse 1. You have searched and known me. So in verse 1, he's saying, it's amazing that you know everything about me. And then in verse 22 and 23, please know me. Isn't that interesting? Why does he do this? Why would the people of God have sung over and over again, using Psalm 139 for worship, reciting it from memory as they would have done? You know everything about me already. Please know me. Please search me. I find this curious. You'd think that perhaps for some, the recitation of this poem, the singing of this song about how God knows everything about us, especially in an old covenant context, would lead to fear. But instead, it leads those who are God's people to ask for more. And I think that's the key to understanding how these concluding words fit with the introduction of the poem to understand it as a whole. David was writing and God's people would sing that they still wanted and needed God's ongoing examination. That's what verse 23 says. Search me and know me, try me and know my thoughts. But 24 
is the key to understanding it. It's a prayer for help and guidance. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It's a prayer that God would lead and guide them according to what he sees in them in the righteous way. That he would lead them to the way everlasting or the righteous way based on what he knows about them. And so here's essentially what you could say he's saying. I know that you see everything about me, but I don't see everything about me. So I need you to lead me based on what you see about me. And here's where that mental bookmark I asked you to hang on to comes back. That word search, both in verse 1 and in verse 23, is a Hebrew word that can be translated examine. And I think once you've got your arms around the rest of Psalm 139 and all that it means for God to know everything about us and the examples of what it looks like and the poetic and illustrative nature in which it's expressed, it then becomes, I think, harder to ask for more. To ask for further examination. I think that, at least for me and the way my brain works, the word in verses 1 and 23 in the ESV, for some reason, search, doesn't feel quite as invasive or intrusive. But the word examine does, at least for me. I'm guessing that most of us don't particularly enjoy going in for some kind of an examination, like a physical or a checkup on a certain thing that needs to be followed up. Those things can be invasive. Those things can be embarrassing. They can be uncomfortable. But even less enjoyable than a physical examination is being examined when it comes to matters of the heart, matters of the soul. But if you have to be examined in that way, you probably wouldn't mind being able to pick who's going to do it for you. That's part of what's going on with jury selection in our country. My mom did this recently. Some of you perhaps have done jury duty before. I've always been able to get out of it, so I haven't been through it yet. But for those of you who have been selected for a jury, you've seen the way that this works. We do it this way in the United States so that we will afford people in our society an opportunity for a fair trial and not just stack the jury with oppositional angry people. And so you want to be able to have your defense team pick your own jury. You want to be able to pick who's going to examine you. But who would pick God for their jury? If you're trying to avoid jurors that know more about you than they perhaps should about that one particular event that you're on trial for. I mean, how's that going to go? God knows everything about you. That's why this psalm ultimately isn't comforting to someone who has not yet been redeemed by God through Jesus. Because friends, if you're God's enemy and he's all-knowing and he's the judge of all the earth, then you're in big trouble. But the good news is that even when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That even while we were dead in sin, God's grace was aimed at us. You remember verse 8 of Psalm 139? 
If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I am in the place of the dead, you are there, O friends. That place of fear and darkness and death, that place where the psalmist and its singers reminded themselves that even when they were threatened by death and fear that God was with him, that is where Jesus went for you. The place of death. He made his bed in Sheol in that he died and was buried. He slept, so to speak, in the grave. But, oh, friends, when he rose, when he sat up and stood up, it was like a key unlocking the door to Psalm 139, going from being something to be afraid of to being something to be cherished. To know and be known by God is good news because of Jesus. And if you're here today and you've never entered into a relationship with God through the repentance of your sin and the embracing of Jesus by faith as the sacrifice for your sins and the king of your life, I've got good news for you. You can do that today and have Psalm 139 be a great comfort to you. And as always, I'll be up here after the service for several minutes ready to talk and or pray with you if you'd like. For those of us who are already in Christ, we have to recognize that the request of the people of God that concludes Psalm 139 is a request that takes humility. Search me. Examine me. Know me. Guide me. It takes humility to ask for examination from the Lord. I thank God that I've seen several of you doing that, even through asking for discipleship and mentoring and accountability in the life of this church. That takes humility. Praise God for that. That's part of this journey of following the Lord's leading. I often lack that humility. I know that I don't know everything, but I still get indignant and offended when someone points things out to me that I know I'm getting wrong. This happened a little bit recently when I was drilling in my basement wall. It was not going well. I ran into some issues, and I got frustrated. I'm not a handyman. I've gotten a little more handy with the help of some of my fellow elders over time who are far handier than I am. But when things aren't going the way I want it to, and I know what's wrong, and then it could be another situation too, and then Kate makes a comment or one of the boys make a comment about something that's not going well, like, oh, that's crooked. I want to go, I know. I already know it, and I can snap about it. I don't want to hear it. But humility seeks help. Humility says to the Lord, you know me perfectly. Please continue to examine me. Please continue to expose what's wrong in me and help me accordingly. Humility also says when it comes to this final phrase, the way everlasting, that way that he is leading us in of eternal life. Humility also says, I know that the way everlasting that you're leading me to and through isn't always going to feel very good. And in fact, it'll even look downright bad and feel downright painful sometimes. But Lord, since you know me best, I am not going to merely submit with gritted teeth and clenched fists. Rather, I'm at peace 
And I'm joyful, which isn't necessarily the same as happiness, by the way. But I'm at peace and I'm joyful because the path that you have me on is the path that you have designed and is directed by the one who knows me perfectly. And who knows what I need most and who knows what sin needs to be dealt with and what endurance needs to be built up in me for what he has for me down the road. It takes humility. So friends, how do you feel about the fact that God knows everything about you? How do you feel about asking him to lead and guide you based on everything that he knows about you? Maybe talking about God's knowledge of everything about you is more uncomfortable than comforting to you. If that's the case, maybe it's because you think there's something you wish you could hide from him and you don't like the fact that he can see it. Friends, again, there's good news. Whatever you are hiding can be forgiven. And the truth is, if you are one of his beloved children because of the atonement of your sins through Jesus, Psalm 139 should invoke confidence and peace and joy. Because if you're part of his kingdom and he's your gracious king, he's not your opponent. He loves you. So may God be praised. He who knows everything knows us. Let's pray. These are marvelous truths, O Lord. As your word says, as we have just read, such knowledge is too wonderful for us. We can't count the sum of your thoughts. We cannot wrap our minds around all that these things say to us about your infinite and perfect and total knowledge. And we need your grace not only to grow in our understanding of these things, but to grow in our humble asking for continued work in our lives through your examination and your sanctification. Help us to that end, those of us who are yours and who are seeking to follow you. If there's one person in this room, young or old, who has never turned to you in faith and repentance, please let today be that day. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take a few moments for quiet prayer and reflection on this passage.